Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast is set for one episode. Your host from Columbus, Ohio, is Michael Kirk. Welcome to the Outlaw Mudcast. Hello and welcome to the Outlaw Mudcast, your digital audio dirt sheet for all things Super Show. The top story for this week. Yesterday, as I record this April 30th, was the Rumble at the Refuge Create a Competitor Tournament hosted by ACE Apex Combat Entertainment. I believe that's correct. There were 24 players at this event. The field included Gen Con winners, former LFF World Heavyweight Champions, former LFF Underworld Champions, Tag Team Champions, Tornado Champions. You know, just an incredible field of players. A little disappointing in the turnout. I know that events in the Northeast Ohio area, which is where this was, have drawn 40 or more in the past. I was hoping this was going to be this size, but it only ended up being 24 players. Steve Resk flew out for this event, ends up actually running the event. That wasn't originally planned, but he ends up being the man running it. The format for this event was five Swiss rounds. Every player played in five matches. The plan was to cut to around a top eight after the five rounds, and diversity took effect. There was one player who went undefeated, 5-0, that was Sean Loeb. He received a bye into the semifinals. All of the four and ones received a bye into the quarterfinals, and the three and twos played off. For both the main Swiss rounds of the tournament and for the three and two play in matches, there were no stipulations. Starting in the quarterfinal round, there were randomly chosen stipulations. There were five stipulations on the list that were possible. Steel Cage, Liger's Den, Ring of Fire, Lumberjack, and Psycho Circus. The way they chose the stipulations was random chance. For each match in the quarterfinals, there was a random stipulation drawn. Of the remaining two, those two were drawn for the semis, and then the finals was the main event match. So, in the what we're calling quarterfinal round, even though there were only six matches, in the quarterfinal, the first match, we saw the Oracle playing as Candyman take on Chris Pate playing as Theo the Greek Neo in a Lumberjack match. The winner there who went on to the semifinals was Chris Pate. The second quarterfinal match saw Pat the Thinker playing as Zack Sabre Jr., the original Zack Sabre Jr., take on Bob Dunn as Big Bad Bobby D. This was a Ring of Fire match. And Bob Dunn moves on to the semifinals. The final match in the quarterfinals saw Scott Meister playing as Amazing Red take on the director of operations, Dave Marisak, playing as Madman Fulton. This was a steel cage match. The winner here who moved on to the semifinals was Scott Meister. Now, for the matchups in the semifinals, it was determined that Sean Loeb, who was undefeated and got the bye into the semifinals, would face off against the lowest possible record. So 
if there were two four and ones and a three and two in the semifinals, he'd face the three and two. If there were multiple three and twos in the semifinals, Sean Loeb's opponent would be determined randomly. If they were all three and twos, if they were all four and ones, same thing, Sean Loeb's opponent would be random. However, of the three players that made the semifinals, Chris Pate, Bob Dunn, and Scott Meister, only Chris Pate had a record of three and two. The other gentlemen were four and one. So Chris Pate had to face Sean Loeb in the semifinals. The stipulation chosen at random for the match between Sean Loeb, who was playing as the Oracle, and Chris Pate playing as Theo the Greek Neo, ends up being Psycho Circus, meaning that Scott Meister, again playing as Amazing Red, faced Bob Dunn playing as Big Bad Bobby D in a Liger's Den match. I tried to watch both of them as much as I could. I know that the match between Scott Meister and Bob Dunn ended at crowd meter one with Scott Meister rolling an 11 and taking the victory moving on to the finals. It was a very short match and I did not get to see the finals. I do know he rolled an 11. The match between Sean Loeb and Chris Pate went quite long. I'm not sure how deep into the crowd meter it ended up going, but I know that Chris Pate Rolled extremely well at the end and ends up winning. He goes on to the finals. Chris Pate, Theo the Greek Neo, versus Scott Meister, Amazing Red, in a main event match that goes all the way to crowd meter four. The crowd on hand was clearly behind Scott Meister in this match. He's a Rust Belt guy. There's a strong Rust Belt presence at Rumble at the Refuge. Chris Pate, of course, has his fans. This was a long match. I believe I mentioned it went to crowd meter four. It was a very frustrating match to watch for those who were pulling for Scott Meister because he routinely just lost turn rolls. The dice were not on his side. Even though he was able to push it to crowd meter four, the dice were not on his side. And in the end, that caught up with him. Chris Pate wins his second creator competitor competition. He will be able to make a competitor in Super Show the Game. Congratulations to him. I hope the competitor from his win here comes out quicker than the competitor from his win in BCW back in 2020, which, by the way, still has not come out at this point. August 2020, Ricky Riot still not available, still not complete. So I'm hoping... This time, whatever Chris Pate makes, it comes out sooner rather than later. Featured matches at the event. ACE put on a championship match featuring their own local championship, the Absolute Apex Heavyweight Championship. We saw the champion, Kilted Gator, playing as Steel Wool, take on the challenger, Foxtail Huntress, playing as Ember Wolf. This was a relatively short match that went to crowd meter zero. The winner here ends up being the Foxtail Huntress. If there's a new absolute apex heavyweight champion, congratulations to Foxtail Huntress for winning that match.
there was also a hardcore tournament that kicked off while the uh, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals were being played. Six players were in this hardcore tournament. Two squared off in a tables match. Two squared off in a ladder match. Two squared off in a steel chain match. The winners faced off in a tables, ladders, and chains triad match. The six players were Colin Simon, Kilted Gator, Jim Bias, Bob Dunn, James Booker, and Brad Iyer. Colin Simon faced Kilted Gator in a tables match, and he wins that. Bob Dunn faces Jim Bias in a ladder match. Bob Dunn wins there. And James Booker faces Brad Iyer in a steel chain match, taking the victory. So, in the TLC match, we have Colin Simon playing as Zombie versus Bob Dunn playing as King Kong Dundee versus James Booker playing as El Super Ombre. This TLC match goes all the way to crowd meter five. Multiple saves, multiple hands buried. In the end, the winner, who as a result of this victory, will receive a shot at the Hardcore Championship, James Booker. James Booker, the man with the cookie's fortune, is going to get a shot at the Hardcore Championship. Now, I believe the initial plan was to have that match take place because the Hardcore Champion, Chris Pate, was at Rumble at the Refuge. However, due to time, due to other constraints, that match was not played in person. It'll be played at a later date, more than likely online. There was, however, a defense of the Hardcore Championship in person. The Hardcore Champion, Chris Pate, took on challenger Pat Mulligan. Pat Mulligan originally planned to face, at the time, Hardcore Champion Jeff McPeak at Huntsville Comic and Pop Culture Expo. That ended up not happening because Jeff and Peak wasn't the champion at the time of the expo and Pat Mulligan did not go to the expo. So that match happens here with the current champion. No stipulation in this match, which I think strange for a hardcore championship to have no hardcore stipulation in a championship match. I'm surprised that happened, but no stipulation. Chris Pate playing his big bad Bobby D versus Pat Mulligan playing his new Jack. This match ends up going to crowd meter two with the winner, still champion, Chris Pate. Congratulations to Chris Pate for winning both his championship match and the tournament, having a big day at Rumble at the Refuge. That was the big news coming out of Rumble at the Refuge. Those were the results. Those were the matches. There are two things I want to talk about, though, that happened at Rumble at the Refuge. The first, unfortunately, involves Scott Meister, the runner-up at the Rumble at the Refuge Creative Competitor Tournament. I don't want to feel like piling on, but I have to give this not an honorable mention, but a dishonorable mention, because I saw him... In the quarterfinal round, make a play that might be the worst play I've ever seen anybody play in Super Show the Game. And I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to talk about why I think this happened, just to point out 
something important about the rules in the game. So, we have Scott Meister facing off against the Director of Operations in a Steel Cage match. Let me talk for a minute about Steel Cage match. A Steel Cage match is a stipulation that has the following rules. There's no disqualifications. The maximum hand size is six. Cards in the discard pile cannot be moved to any other location. Once that card hits the discard pile, it stays there for the remainder of the game. And there's a special win condition, a special finish. A player escapes the cage when they have no playable cards in hand and no cards in their deck. Let me lay out the scenario for what happens. Scott Meister successfully hits a finish against Dave Marisak. Scott Meister has no cards in his deck. He has three cards in his hand, not counting the finish that hit. The finish that he hit, it's the red cross for Amazing Red, reads plus one to technique, plus three to submission, bury any number of cards in your hand, your opponent buries the same number of cards in his hand. Dave Marisak had cards in his hand, had cards in deck. Scott Meister elects to bury all three cards in his hand to force Dave Marisak to bury three cards in his hand. Here's why that was a bad play. Possibly the worst play I've ever seen. The three cards in Scott Meister's hand were all follow-ups. Now, let me talk a bit about the steel cage stipulation and the special finish. The special finish is a player escapes the cage when they have no playable cards in hand and no cards in their deck. Scott Meister had new cards in his deck. That part of the condition had been met. The three cards in his hand were follow-ups. Now, a playable card for the purposes of the steel cage finish is a card that you can play on your turn normally. In a normal game when you have no cards in play, you can play a lead if you have a lead in play. You can play a lead or a follow-up. If you have a lead and a follow-up in play, you can play a lead, follow-up, or finish. If you have just a follow-up in play, which is possible, if you stop a card using a follow-up, you can play a finish but not a lead or a follow-up. We're all familiar with those scenarios. So, in this case, when Scott Meister hit that finish, if... Dave Marisak does not break out. Scott Meister wins. If, however, Dave Marisak does break out, the board's clear. Dave Marisak has cards in deck. Scott Meister has no cards in deck, three cards in hand, all follow-ups. Since you cannot, on your turn, play a follow-up without having a lead in play, because Scott Meister would have no leads in his hand, he would immediately escape the cage, and therefore he would win the match. Because Scott Meister elected to bury those three cards, he gave Dave Marisak the opportunity to potentially come back and win the match. Now, eventually what ends up happening in the match is Scott Meister draws all three of his cards, 
and once he draws the third card, I'm actually acting as referee at that time. Steve Rask had to step out, appoint a immediate referee. I stopped the match because I knew the special finish had been met, declared Scott the winner. Why do I think that happened? Here's why I think that happened. When I talked about playable cards, I believe that what was going on was this. Some of those cards that Scott Meister had were stops. And I think that his belief, his thinking was, a card that can be played as a stop is a playable card because I can still play it to stop my opponent's card. While that's true, for the purposes of the steel cage match, that's not how it works. Playable cards are cards you can play on your turn. Because Scott Meister only had follow-ups and had no leads, he could never on his turn play into those follow-ups. So once he got to a condition where he only had follow-ups in his hand, no cards in deck, he won the match. When I saw that happen, the look I got on my face was apparently so obvious that another player pulled me aside and said, well, he did this because of this. At which point I had to explain, he literally would have won the match had he not buried any cards. Fortunately for him, he got through it, but that potentially could have been the biggest botch of ever, of all time, and definitely the worst play I've ever seen in Super Show the Game. Sorry, Scott Meister, I hate to bring up that story, but honestly, that's maybe the most memorable play I've ever seen. I had to tell that story. The other thing I wanted to talk about that I discussed with Steve and a few other players at Rumble the Refuge was something that he showed on both Expanding the Universe and Talk of the Universe, which is the new entrance gear cards for Ikuzo Super Show. These are essentially entrance cards, but they are for Ikuzo Super Show. They're class-specific. For those of you who remember Ikuzo, Ikuzo competitors belong to a class, that class is defined by their top two skills. For example, competitors with a technique of 10 and a submission of 9 are in the cyber class. Characters with a power of 10 and a grapple of 9 are in the goliath class. So on and so forth. On Talk of Universe, he showed the first class entrance gear card. It's for the cyber class. It's called Entrance Gear. Satellite scheme. You have to be a cyber class competitor to run it, meaning your competitor has to have a technique skill of 10 and a submission skill of 9. I did not get into what happens if you play this card and you don't meet the requirements when the match starts, but you're able to change your skill values to make that card viable. I don't know. If that's a possibility, if you're somebody like Rob Van Dam, who I believe has agility and strike as his top two skills, but when his gimmick is active, both of those skills are 10, could he play a class card with essentially his printed 10 skill as the 9, his printed 9 skill as the 10? So when his gimmick goes active, they're both 10s, and it qualifies. I don't know. 
But here's the way the skill card works that was shown. Here's the way the entrance gear satellite scan card works. I'm going to read the text, and then I'll tell you how it's designed to function. After you roll these skills for your turn roll, technique, technique, strike, strike, look at your opponent's hand, choose one finish, and discard it. To explain a little further, what this means is if you're playing this entrance card, you track your own turn rolls. You record the first time you roll technique, the second time you roll technique, the first time you roll strike after that second technique, and then the second time you roll strike after that first strike. Once that second strike is rolled during the turn roll, you immediately activate the entrance card. You get to, at that moment, before the cards are drawn, if there's a bump before an additional turn roll is made, once that turn roll is the final turn roll, this entrance card goes off, you look at your opponent's hand, if the opponent has a finish in it, you can choose that finish and discard it. Now I said immediately, this is not something you can bank. It's not like the Mad Ones gimmick, where once he rolls those six skills, he can choose which of his turns after that has been achieved he wants to trigger his gimmick on. This happens immediately. Also, this is not a once-per-game effect. Every single time in the game this happens, that a technique, technique, strike, and strike is rolled, you get to look at your opponent's hand, you get to see if they have any finishes, and if they do, you choose one and you discard it. This can happen multiple times in a game. And while this is the cyber one, there have been and there are in the works other entrance gear cards for other classes. One in particular I remember, I believe this was for the class that's the 10 grapple. I can't recall the name of that class off the top of my head. But for the 10 grapple, 9 power class, I believe their entrance card, the one that's in the works, if they roll three skills, I believe it's grapple, grapple, and then a third skill they get to draw a card. Now obviously they're still working these out. They're still trying to balance these. But from what I understand, the design is they're set up to basically trigger when they roll 10 a number of times and then a non-class skill a number of times. Like for example on the Cyber, it's Technique, Technique, Strike, Strike. Well we know the Technique for Cyber is 10. We know the Strikes the printed strike can't be higher than 8 because in the cyber class, the printed 9 is the submission. But that's kind of the way it's designed. I think these are going to be very interesting. I don't know how much play they're going to get because I feel like players normally would rather have something be consistent than something be random. That's why I feel like entrance cards like Champion of Kickstarter or Director of Operations are so popular. With Champion of Kickstarter, you know exactly what it's going to do. You're going to get that additional card in your hand at the beginning of the game. You're going to get the additional card in the discard pile. You're going to get that plus one to your turn roll. Director of Operations, you're going to get that plus two to your hand size. I would say outside of those two cards, the next most popular entrances I see 
are backed by the rack, which allows you to essentially convert a bump to a win. And the uh, cannolis entrance, I believe it's rolling in with the ring general, that gives you once per game an additional breakout roll. Outside of those, I don't see a lot of other entrances being played. Will that change with the addition of the entrance gear? It might. Now, being able to have an entrance car that fires multiple times could be really strong in this game. It's just going to end up being more of a gamble because it's going to happen outside of your control. With Back by the Rack, you pick the when once per game you get to convert a bump to a win by adding plus one to your turn roll. With rolling in with the ring general, you get to choose when you're going to have that additional break roll. So if you fail all of the break rolls, you can still activate that entrance and get one more, one more chance to stay alive in the game. Whereas these entrance cards are, they happen when they happen. It's possible they can happen multiple times. It's possible they might never happen. I would not be shocked if we, in more singles matches, see the more traditional, and in more multiplayer matches, we see the gear cards. Because in multiplayer matches, both tag team as well as triad, fatal four ways, there are no entrances in bird cages, but maybe uh, TLC triads, other formats like that, there are more turn rolls. So those cards may trigger a lot more in that format, and we may see that those formats are where the class cards end up being more played. I think that's a very interesting possibility that we could see with those. But I'm interested to see what comes out. I'm interested to see how the community reacts to it. They are going to be limited automatically because you are going to have to pick people that fit those classes, and not every player likes playing players within those classes. Sort of standard Super Show is to have a 10 and a 9 that are different so you can run a stop at 13 through 15 and then a different stop at 13 through 15. For example, I'll use my own character, DJ Outlaw. DJ Outlaw has an agility of 10 and a grapple of 9. So DJ Outlaw can run, kick into the corner at number 13 to stop a grapple if his agility is greater, and he can run DDT at 14 so he can stop a submission if his grapple's greater than his opponent's grapple. Were DJ Outlaw a class card with an agility of 10, his strike would be 9. Based on the game right now, stops based off both the agility and the strike skill are in card slot number 13. If you're running a stop based off your agility, you can't run a stop based off your strike at 14 or 15. I am a fan of these entrance cards. I'm curious to see how they come out, how they develop. I know there are obviously going to be concerns about how powerful they are, but again, there is that class restriction. We'll just have to see how it works out. But that was the other thing I want to talk about from Talk of the Universe, from Rumble at the Refuge. Those are just some of my thoughts on the entrance gear cards for Ikuzo Super Show. Since we had a couple of championship matches at Rumble at the Refuge, 
Now's a good time to talk about the other championship matches from this week. There end up being three, two of which I had no idea were going to take place this week. The first, Tuesday night before the dojo, the Deep Six Championship was on the line. The current champion, Rowdy Ron, playing as Kid Thunder, took on the challenger, Tim Riley, playing as Big Match Pete. The match went to crowd meter three, but it was very fast. It was a very fast match. The judge, Tim Riley, just kept hitting finish after finish, winning rolls, hitting finishes. Rowdy Ron kept kicking out. And at crowd meter three, Tim Riley hits a finish that Rowdy Ron cannot kick out of. Tim Riley becomes the new Deep Six champion. Congratulations to him. Afterwards, Rowdy Ron rips up his Kid Thundercard. Not happy to see that because in the current climate of the game, competitor cards are limited. If you don't want your competitor set anymore, just sell it. Because there are people out there who would love to have that Kid Thunder card. That now, because you've ripped it up, not only do you not have it, somebody else can't have it. So I would say anybody else out there listening, if you don't want a competitor card anymore, just sell it. I can't tell you how much I would be bummed if there was some card I was looking for, I couldn't get in the secondary market, and I see some guy have it, lose a game, and just rip it up. I would just be so bummed to see that, knowing how much I would love to have that card. That was the Tuesday match Wednesday. I knew this match was going to happen. This had been promoted for a couple weeks. The Underworld Tag Team Championship, the Real Tag Team Championship, the current LFF Tag Team Championship created to essentially be competed for while Young, Dumb, and Broke hold the original, the main LFF Tag Team Championship. The champions coming in, Freezing Frenzy. This is the team of Chris Pagillo playing as Danny Limelight and the Penguin playing as the flip version of Smiley. The challengers were the Jaw Jammers. Kid Thunder playing as Ariel Lipstick and James Booker playing as the Mad One. Kid Thunder using the title shot he got from winning Faction Wars 2, recruiting his Origins tag team partner to join him. This match, quite a long match, but it only ends up going to crowd meter zero. And it's a very unique finish. At crowd meter zero, Chris Pagillo plays the loaded gut punch. This is a strike finish that will cause a disqualification if it is stopped. So, plays the loaded gut punch. If it hits, he gets to roll for the finish. If it's stopped, he loses the match via disqualification, which means Freezing Frenzy remain the tag team champions because... The championship cannot change hands on a disqualification or a countout. James Booker plays Umbrella Hold. Umbrella Hold's a relatively new stop at number 27 that says stop any finished strike if the strike stopped does not have a skill requirement or a competitor logo on it. This card is also finished. Loaded Gut Punch has neither. So, James Brooke plays the stop. He gets to make a finish roll, and Chris Pagillo gets three chances to try to break out. 
if Chris Pagillo breaks out, Jaw Jammers win the match via disqualification. Freezing Frenzy retains the championship. If Freezing Frenzy does not break out, the Jaw Jammers win and become the new champions. The Umbrella Hold successfully stops the loaded gut punch. James Booker rolls a 10 for the finish. Chris Pagillo rolls three times, does not roll a 10. His partner assists him every time, does not make a save roll. The Jaw Jammers become the new LFF Underworld Tag Team Champions, the real Tag Team Champions, whatever you call them. James Booker and Kid Thunder are now the champions. Congratulations to them. Congratulations to Tim Riley, in case I forgot to mention that. The last championship match happened as I was preparing to record. The United States Championship was on the line, live in person at Highlander Games. The champion, Fautista, with the man from IT, took on the challenger, the Norseman, playing as Bjorn the Norseman. This was a very lopsided match in Fautista's favor. Watching this match, Fautista was either winning the turn rolls or... If he was losing, he was losing and triggering his gimmick. The man from IT's gimmick is when the man from IT's player rolls technique, which I believe is a printed five. The man from IT's player gets to look at the opponent's hand, choose a finish or follow-up, and bury it. So between Fotista's gimmick from the man from IT and the cards he was playing, he was able to just continually keep the Norseman's hand size small. Even with that, though, the Norseman was able to hit a finish at crowd near zero. Fotista does end up kicking out. And then Fotista hits a finish at crowd near one and wins the match. Fotista remains the United States champion. Congratulations to him. Now, I have been thinking about this, and I wanted to mention this for sure with the... Deep Six Championship, and I'm going to mention it also here with the United States Championship. I feel like in this game, there is this kind of odd thing where I feel like stuff either happens too quickly or too slowly. When I say too slowly, I'm talking about things like the CCC or Faction Wars. I feel like I've been reporting for a month now about the last match, the last round of Faction Wars. And at this point, we still don't have results for it. The CCC started in 2021. It is May 1st, 2022, as I'm recording this. Four months have gone by in 2022. The deadline for the 2021 CCC submissions was October 31st, so if you count November and December, that's six months that the CCC has been going. Granted, there weren't any matches in November, and for the vast majority of December, I believe the first match started that last week in December, but six months since the 2021 CCC submissions closed, and we just, this past Friday, completed the last match of round one, we won't find out the results until Wednesday, May 4th. And then who knows how long it's going to be to determine the competitors for round two because there's still four to be chosen. 
those are examples of things taking too long, in my opinion. I feel like these things should be tightened up. Because, I've said this multiple times, out of sight, out of mind, when things go on for a long time and they're not promoted, people forget about them. On the flip side, when it comes to championship matches, it feels like they're happening too quickly. From the announcement of the match happening to the match taking place. With the Deep Six Championship, I first learned about the match happening during Talk of the Universe. I had not known what the date or time for that was going to be. And then less than a week later, it happens. To me, a week turnaround, and it was only two weeks, about two weeks from the last match where Rowdy Ron defeated Chris Pate. To me, two weeks is not long enough to build to a match. To me, you need probably three weeks to a month to really promote the match, hype it up, let the people in charge, have a back and forth, cut promos on each other, build excitement toward the match. Same thing with the United States Championship. I had no idea that match was supposed to take place, hadn't heard or seen anything about it, and all of a sudden, here's the championship match. From what I saw, no build, no promos. Again, I could be wrong on these. I could be missing these. But again, that's part of the point. If there's only time to have one, maybe two promos, that might not be enough time to build up, to hype up the match happening. So I feel like we need to find a sweet spot for things. And for me, that means a little bit more time between championship matches and a little less time for some of these big things like Faction Wars and the CCC. That's just my thoughts on where that is. And as always, promote, 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 promote. Get your name out there. Build intrigue. Build excitement. That, to me, is the most important thing. People are only going to care to the extent that you care. If you're in the match and you're not that excited to have the match, how can you expect the people to be excited to have the match? One last bit of championship news before I move on to the next thing. The number one contender tournament for the World Heavyweight Championship is in the top 16. Players in the top 16 have until May 4th, that's Wednesday, to complete their match. All the matches in this round are tables matches. Based on sort of past results, I'm expecting to see the results from this top 16 probably posted next Monday. There's also been a post that while the matches are currently aligned in a bracket, when it hits top eight, that may change. The potential matchups based on the bracket as it is might get swapped depending on the results and the general manager, John Kalasis, we'll just have to see. That's where we are, though, at the number one contender tournament. Bob Dunn's CAC tournament has also kicked off, I believe. Players have about a week left in that term to complete their first round matches. In the preliminary stages, which are going on now, each player has to play five other players in their group stage, and then the top players from those groups will advance to a top cut. 
you are able to change your deck for each match in the preliminaries. So you can essentially tailor your deck to your opponents. Afterwards, I believe once you hit the top cut, you'll probably have to submit a deck list. Watch for Bob Dunn's postings for more information. But that's where we are right now with Bob Dunn's Can't Wait for the CAC Tournament. That is pretty much going to do it for the news I have for this week outside of this week's online tournaments. There were two online tournaments that took place this week. There was a third scheduled. There was a pop-up Friday night that the Cheetah was going to put on, introducing some new rules. Unfortunately, there were no sign-ups for that. So we just have the Monday night event and the Thursday night event. The Monday night event this week was run by Chibi. The SRG boss has been running these, taking over for the Dread Pirate tech support while he's out, while he's unavailable. The boss was unavailable this week, so Chibi ran the Monday night event. The event was called the Monday night beat the clock event. There were seven players in the event Monday night playing as many matches as they could during the preliminary stages. Afterwards, there was a cut to a top four. They played off semifinals to a finals. There was also a third place match in this event. The top four were in fourth place, playing as Kenzie Page, Mac Attack. In third place, playing as Candyman, Chris Pate. In second place, playing as Big Daddy Booker, the judge Tim Riley, and the winner playing as King Bjorn was the Norseman. Congratulations to the Norseman for winning Monday night. Thursday night, we have Chibi's Thursday night fights. There were nine players in this event, two groups, one group of five, one group of four, top two from each group advanced into the top cut. In the semifinal round, all the matches were played under the first blood stipulation. I'm not familiar with that stipulation. There was a finals match and there was a third place match. Both of these were played using the buddy building stipulation. The top four here were in fourth place, playing as Gia de los Muertos. The Cheetah in third place, playing as Le Penguin, was Le Penguin himself. In second place, playing as Dizzy Derailed, Practicite, and the winner of Chibi's Thursday Night Fights, playing as Swim Files. I'm not sure which version of Swim Files. Swim Files is a double-sided competitor, but it's not a flip. It has two different gimmicks, and you can choose which one you want to play as. But the winner with Swim Files, the Grump Danny Thunder. Congratulations to the Grump for winning Thursday. Congratulations to the Norsemen for winning Monday. As far as events for next week, on supershowthegame.com, there's currently nothing listed, but look for something Monday night, look for something Thursday night, Dojo, as always, on Tuesday night. As far as I know, the rest of the week, and really the rest of the month, is open. The next big event scheduled is going to be Origins Game Fair which is the second weekend in June, from that Wednesday to Sunday. It's a five-day convention. Super Show the Game will be there. They're not just a vendor. 
They're also one of the sponsors, so they usually have a large, dedicated play space. And because of this, they not only have a booth in the vendor hall where they can sell product, but at their dedicated play space, they sell product as well. So while most of the time in the convention, you have to wait for the dealer hall to be open, and the dealer hall is only open certain days and certain hours of the convention, SRG gets to sell at their play space pretty much the entire time the convention's open, long after the vendor hall is shut down at night. So they're in a great location, and they have a great advantage at Origins Game Fair. That's going to be taking place June 8th through 12th in Columbus, Ohio, at the Greater Columbus Convention Center. That's where it's been for the past number of years. That's where it is right now. Let me mention this, too. Right now, because this just changed, the policy as far as COVID-19 is concerned, and it just changed, it's this. They are requiring people, if they are eligible to be vaccinated, to be vaccinated no later than May 24th. That's both shots, if you're taking the two-shot vaccines, or one shot if you're taking the vaccine that's only one shot. They changed the mask policy as well. Masks are optional. They were mandatory. Masks are now optional. They're encouraged, but they're not mandatory anymore. I don't know if they also changed their policy on social distancing. I didn't see anything about that. Before, you had to be vaccinated, masked, and social distanced at all times. That has been changed to what I just gave you. I'll continue to monitor the situation and I will give you updates if the policy changes further as we get closer to the convention. But that's the current COVID-19 policy for Origins Game Fair. My plan right now is to be at Origins Game Fair because it is in my hometown to cover the events going on as best I can for the podcast. That is also why I've been asking people to follow at Outlaw Mudcast on Twitter. I would like to get a press pass to get a little more access. I'm not big enough right now to get that. They want you to have an audience of at least 500 people before they'll consider you for that. Unfortunately, nowhere near that many people listen to the show. I wish they did. But I'm hoping that if I can get a big Twitter following, I can take that number to them and say, hey, look, I have this many people following the show on Twitter, and that can help me get them. Because while they're looking for 500, they have stated they'll work with you if you're less. So I'm hoping, you know, if I get 200, 300, maybe that's enough to get me over the edge. That's why I'm asking that. So if you feel like doing it, if you have a Twitter account, follow me. If you don't, there's no need for you to sign up for social media to help me out. But if you're already on there, I'd appreciate it if you just gave the show a follow. With that being said, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Outlaw Mudcast. I'd like to thank all of you for listening, and good day.